Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today, I'm joined by Glenn Gazer. Now, Glenn is a P- has a PhD in exercise physiology, and he's a professor of exercise physiology at Arizona State University, and he's the recent president of the Southwest chapter of the American College of Sports Medicine. And he's been pretty prolific in doing research studies and publishing his findings about the benefits of exercise and has done it in a way that sort of frames it as exercise is the end in its own right. Just doing exercise should be the priority and more important than focusing on weight loss. In fact, he makes the argument that our focus on weight loss has really led us in the wrong direction um, and is misguided and potentially dangerous. And this is a really interesting discussion because so much of our our daily focus and you know the what you see on social media and what you see in, in medical literature, so much is focused on weight loss. And he says, well, let's take a step back here and really look at it from a scientific perspective. And that's this new paper he published in iScience making the case that the that the research is stronger for all-cause mortality benefit for exercise than it is for weight loss. We get into a lot of different discussions about the nuances of this, which I think are fascinating. I hope you find it as interesting as well. To me, though, this really brings up this concept of healthy weight loss, that not all weight loss is the same, but instead focusing on healthy weight loss. And that's what we're doing a lot now at Diet Doctor, really focusing on healthy weight loss. And what does that mean? Well, it means improving your lean mass. And as you're going to hear him say, as you're going to hear Dr. Gazer say, it's also going to be improving the function of your lean mass, which is interesting. So improving your body composition with lean mass, reducing your visceral adipose tissue, um, which you can't always measure, but certainly belly fat, improving metabolic health, so your blood sugar, your insulin, your triglycerides, your HDL, improving your inflammatory markers even, um, and doing it in a way that you can sustain it that doesn't lower your resting metabolic rate. So it sounds like a whole bunch of things on your checklist that you have to meet, and how are you ever going to do that? But really, a low-carb, higher-protein um, type of nutrition pattern has been shown scientifically to really work in this way, and clinically it tends to work very well also, and then combining that with exercise. So that's my take that that combination, the low carb, higher protein, along with exercise is really the best combination. And so in this discussion, we get so much more into the details of exercise, what type of exercise, how much, where you're going to see the best benefits, um, and, and try and unpack this, you know, harm of weight loss. And what does it really mean? Does it mean what kind of weight loss, what kind of diet? We also talk about the athletes who aren't healthy because that's important too, that there's a subset of athletes who do have metabolic dysfunction are not metabolically healthy. So how do we explain that? So I I really appreciate Dr. Gazer's uh, perspective on this and his knowledge of the research um, to really help us bring it all together, to focus on the research and to come up with a practical tip so you can walk away from this with some knowledge about, okay, maybe what should I do? What should I try? What should I talk to my trainer, my doctor, my health coach about um, to improve my health? So hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Uh, So now without, without further ado, let's get into the interview with Glenn Gazer. Well, Glenn Gaser, thank you so much for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's, it's really a pleasure to have you here. You know, what, what got me interested in your work was this recent paper, uh, Obesity Treatment, Weight Loss Versus Increasing Fitness and Physical Activity for Reducing Health Risks. And this whole concept of right. physical activity, cardiorespiratory fitness versus weight loss, what's better for health, how can you tell? And it's a it's a pretty complicated minefield, so I definitely want to get into that with you. But first, give us a little bit of your background, how you got to this point, to this, this type of research interest, mm-hmm. and what brought you here. Well, I'm an exercise physiologist and have been my entire academic career. So I studied at the University of California, Berkeley, received all my degrees there, including the PhD, and immediately went into academia. So I've been you know, actively teaching and doing research uh, for the last 40 some odd years uh, on this area of health, fitness, weight control, obesity. And it just dawned on me uh, through basically years of observation that our obsessive uh, nature as a culture about weight just wasn't doing anything mm. useful. Uh, So, for example, if you go back when the uh, increased prevalence of obesity was noted, mainly it started in about the 1980s, uh, crept up a little bit in the 70s, but mostly the 80s and 90s are where obesity prevalence really started increasing. It's still increasing, but at a slower rate now. So if you go back from the 80s, now we're 35, 40 years into 
a situation where the obesity prevalence in, the, in America has tripled in those decades. But just as alarming is that the prevalence of weight loss attempts, that is our annual obsession with weight and to how to lose it, uh, that has also increased by approximately the same amount. So we diet, we try to lose weight more now than we ever have before. And yet we're fatter as a nation than we mm -hmm. ever have been before. So clearly, I don't think this weight-centric approach to try, you know, just to try to cure things by losing weight has really been all that helpful. And it certainly has not been a, anywhere near what we would call a success. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, especially so many people listening to this are thinking, yeah, yeah, you know, I've been trying to lose weight and haven't been successful. And the statistics bear it out that there may be some initial success, but long-term weight loss success is, is pretty poor. And there are a couple ways I think to look at that. One is just weight loss doesn't work, shouldn't be tried, or the message we've been giving for weight loss has been incorrect. And we sort of need to reframe our narrative about that. But then the third is, and this is sort of the point of your paper, that maybe it's not weight loss we should be focusing on, but rather physical activity, cardiorespiratory fitness, and that's where the real gold nugget lies for improving our health. So tell us some of the background about why you think that focusing on fitness is the better approach rather than focusing on weight. All right, that's a good question. So let me just put it to you this way. So let's say you have an individual who is very fat, all right, a lot of body fat, uh, body mass index is over 30. So by any definition, the individual meets the definition of being obese, all right? So let's say they have a lot of health problems. They've got high blood pressure, glucose intolerance, uh, their lipids are a little out of whack, you know, high cholesterol and so forth. In other words, they have this classic cardiometabolic syndrome that is associated with obesity. So it would be logical to assume, maybe not logical to me, but I think it would be uh, reasonable to assume for most people that if a lot of these heavy fat individuals have these health problems, that it's the weight that mm -hmm. is the problem. Because you definitely see lots of these health problems more frequently in individuals that are considered right. obese by the BMI criteria. So the question I asked is, how do you know it's the body fat? Maybe it's the lifestyle that goes along with that. One easy way to answer that question would be to take an individual, this individual in question, or a group of individuals that are similar, and put those individuals on an exercise program and clean up their diet. So you improve their diet and see what happens. And these studies have been published. They have been published for decades. And they show that most, if not all, of the health problems attributable to or associated with obesity are resolved or greatly improved in a matter of days or weeks once an individual starts a healthy lifestyle program, even if they don't mm -hmm. lose much weight. So this suggests that it might be the lifestyle that's the underlying problem and not necessarily the weight per se. And there are loads of studies to support that point of view. Yeah. So in your paper, you make the argument that you're talking about mortality risk. Mortality risk for people who are overweight does not consistently go down mm -hmm. in weight loss studies. In some it does, but in many it doesn't. Yeah. Whereas in these um, physical activity or cardiorespiratory fitness exercise intervention trials, that the mortality risk is mm -hmm. more likely to go down with those interventions rather than weight yeah. loss. And so that right. speaks to what you were just saying. So with exercise, you can clean up the metabolic dysfunction. You can improve the triglycerides, the glucose, the insulin. And also you can decrease certain types of fat even without weight loss. And I think that's really interesting research too. So tell us a little bit about the research about decreasing visceral adipose tissue um, with exercise yeah. even without overall weight loss. So an individual has, everyone has, uh, different types of fat, and it's uh, it's basically subcutaneous fat, the fat that's stored underneath the skin. That's the largest fat depot we have. And we also have fat that is deposited elsewhere in the body, not underneath the skin. An example is the visceral abdominal fat that you mentioned. So this is a, a, in the gut, all right? But we also have what is referred to as ectopic fat, which is fat 
in places where it normally shouldn't be found. So I'm talking about the liver. I'm talking about around the heart, around blood vessels, uh, in muscle. Uh, so this ectopic fat is fat deposits where it's normally not supposed to be. So, for example, liver fat is um, very common now, and it's more common amongst people with obesity than without obesity. And that liver fat is now, it's basically referred to as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And it's very common even in young people. So this poses a great health risk because the liver fat or, and visceral abdominal fat typically pose all the health risks associated with obesity. So the good thing about exercise is that exercise targets this quite nicely so that you can actually, with exercise and with a healthy eating program, drop some you know, uh, weight, very little, but if it's almost all in the ectopic fat or visceral fat stores, you see big improvements in health, even though the numbers on the scale may not change. So you can actually have an individual that has a lot of subcutaneous fat and ectopic and visceral fat, they go on an exercise program and they can reduce their uh, ectopic and visceral fat and see greater health improvements, even though there's not a big change in overall weight or, or total body composition. And their subcutaneous fat may not change at yeah. all. Yeah, I mean, that is pretty remarkable, uh, remarkable studies that something about exercise can target that visceral adipose tissue, even if maybe you're building muscle or you're, you're just improving your cardiorespiratory fitness, somehow that targets yeah. that visceral adipose tissue, which is associated with much worse outcomes. So getting rid of it is definitely uh, indicated. But when you talk about exercise routine, like what are you talking about, right? Because some people, when they hear exercise routine, they think, I'm not running a marathon. What are you crazy? Or they think, I'm not spending an yeah. hour in the gym. Yeah. I can't do that. So what is the exercise routine yeah. that is supported by the literature to have these positive benefits? All right. Good question, um, because that's a good take home, you know, uh, uh, question for and response for your uh, audience. So let me start with the, uh, the public health guidelines. The public health guidelines right now uh, uh, basically encourage all adults to accumulate at least 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity activity at a minimum, uh, with the goal to get that up closer to 300 minutes a week if they can you know, fit it in. Or if you want to go a little bit more vigorously, 75 minutes to uh, 150 minutes of vigorous intensity activity. So basically, a vigorous intensity minute counts double what a moderate intensity uh, minute counts. And so what that, the reason for that is because the, the studies generally show that vigorous intensity activity generally lead to greater health benefits. So you can mix and match how you, how you, uh, however it fits into your schedule. And an example of moderate intensity activity would be like brisk walking. So we're not talking about racing a marathon or no long distance types of efforts, nothing like that. And when you, when you do the math on this, 150 minutes a week, at first you know, glance, it might sound like a lot. 150 minutes, that's two and a half hours. But that's per week. So you have seven days to get that in. So if you divide the 150 by seven, it comes out to about 21 minutes a day, which is not all that, I think, imposing. And that can be spread out throughout the day. So it doesn't have to be a 21 minute walk at one time and do that you know, seven times a week that might not be feasible and might not be sustainable. Uh, but you can mix and match throughout the day. You can get a few minutes of exercise in here and there, a brisk walk in the morning, a brisk walk in the afternoon however it fits into your schedule. So uh, that's the base amount of activity that is recommended. More than that, obviously, supplies more benefits. But even if you can't do that, there's a dose-response relationship that is well-established, which means that even if you don't hit, hit 150, even getting to 140 or 100 minutes a week, even 50 minutes a week, is going to provide some benefit. So it's better than doing nothing. And the biggest benefit in terms of health is getting a sedentary couch potato, at least doing something. And even if it doesn't meet the 150 minute guideline. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that evidence you, you cited in your paper, that 30 to 60% reduction in all cause mortality by getting someone to be sedentary or very inactive to go up basically one category right. in their activity yeah. level. 
which sounds yeah. impressive. So maybe on an absolute risk reduction, it wouldn't be as impressive, but for a relative risk reduction, it sounds very impressive for not much work. Now, we, we know with yeah. nutrition studies, compliance is poor. And you could say, you know, it's not a big ass to eat real food and stay away from the processed junk, and it's not a big ass, but compliance is poor. What about compliance with these exercise studies, even though if it's not a huge ask, real-world populations, do we have data on what the compliance is like? Yeah, and it's not good. And w- one of the reasons for that, I think, is that we've been pitching exercise for the wrong mm. reasons. Most often we view exercise as a means to expend calories. In other words, just to create some sort of caloric deficit. So it's like, okay, the main goal is to lose weight. How do you do that? Well, you can exercise, you burn calories, you can uh, cut back on calories in the diet. Any way you can do it, you cut calories, you lose weight, and that's the ultimate goal. But most people who lose weight will ultimately regain it. And in the paper, we refer to this as like a weight loss futile mm-hmm. cycle. You lose weight, it, the rate of weight loss slows down, you reach a plateau, failure to reach a target goal, whatever it is, you want to lose 20 pounds, you lose five, reach a plateau, you quit, and start the you know, process all over again. Well, that yo-yoing is not healthy for you yeah. either. And so what we wanted to do was basically try a different strategy, and admittedly, a a lot of studies show that people drop out of exercise programs as much as they do quit diets. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So this is going to be a, a tough sell. But our argument is, is that it seems like exercise uh, in terms of the ultimate outcome, mortality. All right. And I'll get into that a little bit more, why we yeah. focused on that. But if exercise can do as much or more than traditional weight loss programs for you know, many outcomes, why not try that? Because losing weight and keeping it off is very difficult. And this has been tried for decades and has proven for most people to be mm-hmm. pretty difficult, if not impossible, to keep, sustain that weight loss. So we figured that it might be better to try to present a case for a weight neutral approach. If people want to lose weight, fine, but let's not keep um, focusing on just the weight loss as the primary goal. Have them exercise, change their diet, and any little bit might help. And if we encourage that behavior, in other words, the actual behavior itself, people might be more inclined to, to keep with it if the health you know, professionals, the physicians and exercise scientists, the uh, clinicians out there, the dietitians, and so forth, if they're all in on that, then I think the best thing to do would be to try it. Just just try it. Exercise is yeah, good medicine. For sure. And I really like how you said we've been focusing on the wrong reason for exercise. It's not just about a caloric deficit, but it's about the metabolic health benefits and the visceral adipose and feeling yes. good and, and so forth. There are so many other reasons to exercise. Now, would you make the same jump for nutrition and say maybe we've been focusing on nutrition all wrong too, that it's not just exercise, but saying nutrition for the purpose of weight loss maybe isn't shouldn't be our focus either, but nutrition for the purpose of metabolic health would be the better focus. Would you tie those two together? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I... I wrote a book called Big Fat Lies that was published 25 years ago. And uh, I tried to emphasize and encourage this concept of metabolic Mm -hmm. fitness that can be achieved with both exercise and diet, but focusing on the quality of the diet, not necessarily the number of calories. So I think if you look at all the popular diet books that have been around for decades, you know, year in, year out, there are some diet books that are on the bestseller list all the time. These have focused on weight loss. They've been pitched as a means to lose weight. So that is what Americans have been kind of led to believe, that we need to focus on the weight because weight is important. And what we're saying is that, well, the science says that actually the behaviors are probably more important than the weight. And we, we wanted to present this in terms of a scientific case to say, look, the argument is made. We've proved it. And getting back to the mortality issue that I mentioned a a few moments ago, the reason why we focused on this, the mortality, is because there are a lot of studies on mortality. It's a hard endpoint, all right? So 
there are data on mortality for from people who have lost weight, populations of people who have been studied over time to see if individuals intentionally lose weight, what are their outcomes, and if mortality is one of them, we can track that. And we looked at all the studies that have been published that we could find. We did you know thorough PubMed and uh, Web of Science, Google Scholar searches and so forth on for these articles. And we found, I think, all the relevant studies. And the weight loss doesn't seem to be consistent with regard to producing a really significant decrease in your mortality risk. It just doesn't. A lot of studies show no benefit whatsoever. whatsoever. Some show a, uh, a slight benefit and others are yeah. just wishy-washy. I mean, they just basically, you, you, you can't tell one way or the other. But as you mentioned a while ago, the physical activity literature is very consistent, very compelling. For people who are very regularly physically active, their risk reduction for all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease mortality, uh, typically goes way down. And if people who are inactive change their activity level, who are unfit and improve their fitness level, their uh, mortality risk goes down as well. And I don't think very many people are going to start an exercise program just so they can add on a few years, decades later. That's not a primary motivator there. But from a scientific perspective, we wanted to present this just to show that, yes, when you compare weight loss and exercise or fitness right. head to head, it's the exercise and fitness that seems to win out every single time. And so we figured, look, if we have the data to support it, why not start focusing on that approach? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great um, a great reason for exercise and a great promotion of exercise. I guess the concern then can become, though, does it completely remove weight from the equation so that people, you know, the, the health at any size movement, the cover of Cosmopolitan mm -hmm. that said this is healthy when showing some morbidly obese people, instead of saying this is beautiful, this is, you know, this is fine, this is accepted, um, and said this is healthy. So could that potentially, though, present the wrong message for someone who's not getting their insulin measured, their glucose measured, their triglycerides measures, for someone who's not following up with their doctors mm -hmm. to then say, well, it's okay, I can be, I'm healthy at this weight. So instead of saying you can be healthy at that weight, saying you are yeah. healthy at that weight, do you, do you see a problem in, in maybe the public's perception of this message from that standpoint? Oh, certainly. Well, I published Big Fat Lies, a book 25 years ago. And over those last 25 years, I can tell you there are a lot of people who have misinterpreted the message. Uh, I was never saying that it is okay to be fat. In other words, don't worry about anything. <laughs> you don't ever have to go to the doctor again. Uh, you never have to have any health metrics checked. You're fine as you are. No, that is not what we're saying. What we're saying is, is that weight does not seem to be as an important a predictor, a measure, a metric of one's health as their behaviors. So yes, you phrased it right. It's fat is, is we're not saying that it is okay to be fat. That has no meaning for us. We're saying that fatness or weight, those anthropometric measures have little meaning unless you also attach that to the behaviors of the individual, their diet, their exercise, how much sleep they get. And these, these sorts of things, the behaviors that also are very important for health, you know, mental health and so forth. And that's what we're trying to say here, that exercise seems to have positive benefits for virtually everyone who has been studied. All right. You can look at all the populations, healthy, unhealthy, young, old. People always seem to get better when yeah. they exercise in terms of their overall health metrics and their uh, risk of uh, chronic diseases typically goes down. So there's just a large compelling body of evidence that supports that case. And so why not focus on it? So we're not saying, no, don't forget, uh, don't, just don't worry about any measures. You don't have to get your, if you're fat, fine. You never have to get your blood pressure checked again. No, no, yeah. not at all. But I will yeah. say this, speaking of that medical model, every time someone goes in to see a doctor, what do they do? They typically put them on a scale and weigh them. All right. How many times do you go to a doctor and they ask you about your exercise program, which would only take okay. a few minutes? It might take even a, just a, a minute. Are you active? How many times a day do you just get up and do a brisk walk? 
how many times a week do you engage in an activity that you feel you're breathing hard or something like that? It could be very qualitative. And then it also can be very quantitative. In other words, okay, how many days of the week do you do this, this, or this? So a physician could very easily ask some questions that might get an idea of whether or not an individual is absolutely sedentary or at least moderately active or very active. And to me, that would be much more meaningful than just putting them on a scale and looking at the BMI chart and say, oh, you're obese, you're, you're unhealthy, you need to lose weight. Well, what if that person is exercising regularly? And I can tell you, I've exercised regularly my entire life. I used to be you know, a competitive runner. I uh, would enter road races, 10Ks, marathons. I've competed in triathlons, road races, uh, bike races. I do cycling now. And I see a lot of people out there that um, are exercising, and they're not, they're not slim. There are a lot of heavy people who exercise regularly, but they're not slim. And it might, you might think, well, if you exercise, wouldn't the calories just kind of burn away and you get down to the weight you want? And that's not true. It, it just doesn't work out that way. So body weight is a, a largely an, a, a heritable trait. In other words, genetics plays a huge role in body size. Now, you might be able to tell looking at me, mm -hmm. I'm thin. Yes. Is it because I exercise? Maybe a little, because my adult weight gain from the time I left high school or college till now has only been about an increase of about 10 pounds. Um, but most people gain way more than that. So is it due to the exercise? Maybe a little, but if you looked at my parents, you see that both of them are yeah. thin as well. So a lot of it's just genetics. And my brother and sister don't exercise very much, and they're on the lean side as well. So it just happens to run on our family. But just as uh, heaviness you know, uh, might uh, run in, in other people's families. But it doesn't mean that they can't achieve the benefits of a, a healthy lifestyle. And that's all we're saying. It's the lifestyle that should be right. the main focus. Right. It's, yeah, it's such an interesting topic, though, too, about the genetics and the epigenetic sorry, the genetics and the epigenetics and the role of the two of them and how they interact together to affect body weight and health. But just to go back for a second, you make such a good point. Everybody steps on the scale in the doctor's office, and it's a vital sign that goes in the chart. And there was a push a while ago to make physical activity a vital sign. And I remember hearing a lot about it, reading mm -hmm. a lot about it, and it seems like it kind of went nowhere. And I, I really wish it would have gotten adopted more. And I wonder why the why the barrier to adoption and that in addition to sort of body composition measures, you know, weight, BMI, they're, they're not very helpful, but knowing your body fat percentage, knowing your mm -hmm. visceral adipose tissue, um, knowing your fat-free mass, those are much better markers. So I guess it's a two-part question. Why did the physical activity as a, as a vital sign kind of not get adopted? And two, is there any chance or do you think there would even be a benefit to instead focusing on, focusing on weight, focus instead on body composition? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, there was a paper published uh, you know, from the American Heart Association a few years back uh, with actually the emphasis on uh, treating uh, cardiorespiratory fitness as a vital sign something that should be equal to all the other vital signs, like you said, the weight, the blood pressure, and so forth, that you typically get in uh, an annual physical. And the recommendation was to have uh, individuals regularly tested for their fitness. Now, this is a little bit difficult. You're not going to do it in a regular doctor's office, at least not on a, uh, a regular basis. I don't think that might be challenging. But they could be referred out to fitness centers and so forth, universities, I mean, every major metropolitan area with loads of physicians and hospitals around there, would have a number of universities that could probably serve this role uh, with uh, the fitness centers, exercise physiologists like myself uh, in laboratories that could do this. So it could be done, uh, but I think there's just a, a problem of overcoming mm -hmm. inertia. It has not been that way for such a long time. And you mentioned it seems to have gone nowhere, and that is difficult. Uh, very difficult. There's a lot of inertia. Once something gets entrenched in our you know, cultural mindset, even our professional mindset, it's difficult to change that. And so I think it's going to be a long while before we, we see this become just commonplace. But, you know, it's um, everyone has to just do their job, you know, fight the good fight. And, uh, you know, I published this paper to try to, you know, just, uh, you know, just provide a spark to get the conversation going again and look where I am on yeah. your show. 
So it, it keeps going. So yes, uh, fitness should be uh, viewed as a vital sign. Um, the American College of Sports Medicine a number of years ago, maybe about 10 years ago or so, um, started an exercise as medicine initiative. And uh, this was a joint effort with the American uh, Medical Association, American Heart Association, to get basically exercise viewed as medicine. And uh, the reason for that is because of the, what I've already mentioned. There are just hundreds and hundreds of studies to show uh, the medicinal effects of exercise, that they have effects that are um, equal to a lot yeah. of medications, um, equal to um, you know, a lot of diets and, or, or better than that. So uh, it, it can pr produce good you know, good results for yeah. individuals and should be treated as now, such. Now, I know I asked a two-part question about body composition, but I want to come back to the body composition because first I want to talk about the sort of the other side about exercise and health. And there are some prominent examples like Dr. Peter Atia and of course, Professor Tim Noakes and Sammy Inkinen from, from Verta Health that um, sort of elite endurance athletes who you'd think would be at the pinnacle of health, but during their um, athletic endeavors, while they're training that hard and getting that much exercise, they're having metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance, prediabetes. So that is the sort of the counter argument that, well, not all exercise is going to promote health. And we have plenty of examples of big exercisers who were unhealthy, who needed to turn to diet because exercise wasn't doing it. So what do you think um, of course, that doesn't invalidate all the other data that shows the benefits of exercise, but it suggests that mm -hmm. there's um, a different scenario. So what do you think the difference is in those scenarios that one can promote health and one is not enough to promote health? Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, first of all, those instances that you mentioned are fairly rare. So if you look at the, the health of well-trained endurance athletes, by and large, it's very good. So there are some examples, though, where it's not. And basically, you could ask the question, if exercise is medicine, is it possible mm -hmm. to overdose? All right. Can there be too much? And uh, this has particular rel relevance to um, the effects of exercise on the heart. Right. So there might be some cardiac abnormalities that develop with extreme exercise. And the point is well taken that there are some instances where you have some cardiovascular or metabolic dysfunction in some of these elite athletes, it's very rare. But in the message to the general public, I don't think um, there should be much concern about that because we're not going to see anytime soon the general public getting to exercise levels that these elite athletes get to. It's not even you know, part of the equation. It's, it, I don't think it should be any concern whatsoever. What the public health recommendations are for people, the 150 to 300 minutes a week of moderate intensity activity, or 75 minutes to 150 minutes a week of vigorous intensity activity. Those recommendations, if people met those, you would have substantial in improvements in health, reductions in disease risk, with very few consequences in terms of uh, risk associated with that yeah. exercise. So we're looking at two extremes. Our goal in this paper was try to, to say, look at the benefits of becoming fit, not extreme fitness, just going from low fit to a moderate yeah. level of fitness that could be achieved with those public health guidelines or just becoming more active. That would target a lo much larger percentage of the population. The extreme athletes really uh, comprise a very, very small sliver of the, the population. And I don't think we should be fearful of exercise when we see examples like that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and I wouldn't say fearful of exercise. Uh, I, instead, I'd want to sort of investigate it and say, what could be some of the contributing factors? And I, I don't know what the contributing factors are, but yeah. it certainly could be, you know, they're pounding the Gatorade and right. eating the goo and pasta loading, you know, carb loading before their big workouts and their big races which I think is, is also an important message that exercise doesn't exist in a vacuum and exercise and nutrition work together. And just because you're going on your 20 minute walk doesn't mean you've deserved that cupcake or deserve that, you know, bottle of Gatorade. And, um, so, so I guess, how do you see the intersection of, of exercise and nutrition? And do you think that could have been a, could be a component to people having metabolic dysfunction despite, uh, adequate exercise? Yeah, there's no question that uh, exercise um, can 
create some situations where you're not going to have an optimal result. So, you know, it's a pretty complicated question you asked. Let me kind of uh, go at it in bits. First of all, the benefits of exercise are largely independent of the diet a person is on. And this has been studied in a number of uh, uh, cohorts where you take a look at individuals who engage in an exercise program. You look at the improvements in various outcome measures like insulin sensitivity, uh, blood lipids, lipoproteins, and so forth. And it appears that the improvements are largely independent of whether or not the individual is on a good diet or a bad diet by, let's say, the American Heart Association standards, for, um, uh, just for example here. So that's one thing. Uh, it's also been uh, demonstrated that you have in some a small segment of the population in these studies, you have what are referred to as adverse responders. So when I mentioned that exercise basically does everybody good, in general, that's true. But there have been some studies to show that maybe 10 to 20% of people who start an exercise program will get an adverse response to some health outcome, like blood pressure, HDL cholesterol, triglycerides, and, um, and so forth. In other words, when I say a negative outcome, it, that, the measure doesn't improve. It actually gets a little bit worse. Now, maybe these are just one-off anomalies, uh, and I should point out that if someone doesn't get better in blood pressure, doesn't mean they're not going to improve in other outcomes. So when you look at this collectively, most, almost everyone will benefit from exercise, even though there are instances of adverse responses, which means there might be instances where exercise isn't the ultimate elixir that basically makes you immune from any kind of disease or health outcome. That's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is that when you look at exercise and its benefits, they are, for the most part, very consistent and very compelling, very robust, and across different populations, different age groups, and so forth. So that's the point we're trying to make. But if someone has high blood pressure, and they start an exercise program, and it comes down, but it's still in the hypertensive range, um, they need something else. And it, diet might do it. They might try exercise and a DASH diet or some other type of uh, diet that's been shown to reduce blood pressure. And if that doesn't work, they may need medication. So we're not saying that uh, this is anti-medicine. We're saying that exercise is medicine and it can be viewed as like a drug, but without any side effects. Uh, so, or very few side effects, I should say. Uh, for the vast majority of people, no, no side effects. So we're not saying that exercise should be viewed as a vacuum and that if you, as long as you do that, you don't have to worry about anything else. But what we are saying is that uh, there is a large compelling body of evidence that suggests that it is a really, really uh, good behavior to uh, produce good health outcomes, regardless of a person's diet and regardless of what they weigh. So you get back to the diet issue. Some people are unwilling to change their diet. I mean, every five years, uh, the U.S. government puts out U.S. dietary guidelines. And this has been mandated by Congress first in 1980. And then every five years after that, they put out dietary guidelines. Well, if you look at those guidelines and look at studies to see how well people follow them, they don't really follow them all that well. I mean, we've been advocating more fruits and vegetables, more whole grain foods for decades. And has it made much of a difference? Just a little bit. I mean, if you look at how much we've improved our diet health-wise, it's basically a yeah. flat line. I mean, we have uh, a lot of people get a lot of their calories from highly processed foods. Uh, and so I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. But it looks like the direction of our diet, our dietary changes, despite our best efforts to try to convince people to you know, eat a healthy diet, that doesn't seem to be working yeah. much either. It, it, do, right. it just doesn't. So again, we're saying, look, if you're unwilling to change your diet, maybe try exercise. That has been basically the one thing that I don't think has been advocated enough. I mean, every five years, the government comes out with U.S. dietary guidelines. Do they do the same for exercise? No, they do not. And these, the, diet, the dietary guidelines advisory group it's put together every five years. They put out this huge volume. It's five, six, seven hundred pages 
that they submit, you know, for their uh, for basically uh, the USDA and the Department of Health and Human Services to look at and make recommendations. So we don't do that for exercise. Yes, there are public health guidelines, but they're not evaluated and reissued every five years. Right. That's a good point about the emphasis clearly isn't there for the physical activity the way it is for the nutrition guidelines. And and we've done yeah. entire shows on the nutrition guidelines. And I would certainly make the argument, you know, people aren't following it because it's the wrong advice. And we need to change the advice to what's more practical and, and, and effective, um, which leads me to the advice for exercise, practical and effective you know, going back to the 80s, it was all cardio is king. You know, just just do your your walking, your running, and that's that's where you're going to get your biggest bang for the buck. Lately, it seems like it is switched to resistance training, or with like high intensity interval training squished in there, and then resistance training is key now for building muscles, which does sort of bring me back to my body composition question that I want to get to. But what do you think about the um, importance of resistance training versus cardio? If you, you know, if somebody has limited time, um, limited ability to exercise, which would you prioritize over those? That's a tough one. I do both. So, um, and I realize when people get older, uh, there's no doubt that people lose um, muscle mass as they age. And so I think as individuals get older and older, it's probably as important or maybe even more important to do resistance exercise uh, compared to the cardio. But I hate to prioritize one or the other. I mean, if you held a gun in my head and said, you've got to pick cardio or resistance, I'd, I'd still probably go with cardio simply because I feel more most comfortable with that. But it's basically a question that I would I, I would hesitate to answer because both are really important. Now, you mentioned, you know, decades ago, cardio was the rage. I mean, all the guidelines were basically do cardio. And largely because that's what uh, the the research studies were focusing on. The image of your resistance uh, exercise was largely emanating from the, the bodybuilders and weightlifters and those doing those kinds of workouts. And it was like, well, do we really want people to look like that? Do they really need to look like Schwarzenegger? I mean, yeah. that was the image that, no, they don't need to look like that. That's too much. Um, but over the last few decades, there have been many, many more studies now done on the benefits of resistance exercise compared to aerobic exercise uh, in a lot of different populations. So now... We have enough evidence, I think, to make some definitive statements. And I will say this, if you take a look at, let's say, head-to-head cardio versus resistance for uh, most cardiometabolic health outcomes, cardio seems to be a little bit better. If you take a look at it in terms of reduction in visceral abdominal fat, ectopic fat, cardio seems to be a little bit better. Uh, if you take a look at uh, some health outcomes, the combination of the two seem to be better. So this is why I think the public, current public health guidelines are right on when they claim that you should encourage um, uh, individuals to do both, the, both the cardio and the resistance. So, you know, I, I would hate to be in a situation where I had to pick one or the other because I just don't think it's a, a fair yeah. question. Both are extremely important. And there's no doubt now that resistance exercise training has been shown to produce good yeah. health benefits, um, certainly in terms of the uh, uh, maintenance and development of lean body mass, particularly fat-free mass, muscle mass, the uh, resistance exercise would be preferred. And so when you look at individuals as they get older and they become more uh, prone to frailty, and uh, not being able to live independently. Here is where I would say, in those situations, I would say uh, resistance exercise would be my primary uh, emphasis there uh, because I think it might help to improve functional fitness a little bit better than the cardio. Even though the cardio has been shown to be very beneficial all the way through even middle age and older. But I think for, for some people, particularly if they have trouble doing activities of daily living, um, losing muscle mass, um, 
sarcopenic obesity right. is another big, huge problem in uh, the elderly population. Definitely resistance exercise training should be something that people should be doing. Yeah, it's a good historical perspective that all the research on exercise was cardio for decades. And now resistance training seems yep. like it's catching up. Um, so interesting to compare the two because there are so many good articles now showing metabolic benefits with resistance training. Um, and the head-to-head the -head with cardio, we need more Certainly. sort of the head-to-head -head if we need to know exactly how to prioritize. But I like your... I like your position that you should be doing both. You should be getting some combination of both and find out where your biggest, I guess you say, weaknesses are. And if if you are having trouble with functional activities with sarcopenia, then certainly focus more on the resistance training. Um, so I, I think that's a, a good position and it's going to be interesting, interesting to see as we have more head-to-head data between the two. But you brought up fat-free mass, which I think is so important. And that I want to circle back here to the weight loss because you know, one of the underlying themes, and I guess you could say criticisms against your paper, was that it really um, invalidates weight loss as a as a meaningful approach. And I'm not I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but that's how some people are certainly interpreting it. That you know, weight loss doesn't matter. Weight loss is futile. Don't even try it. As opposed to saying sort of the type of weight loss is important. So it's easy to lose fat mass and lean mass with weight loss. And then it's easy to regain the fat mass. You're not doing yourself any favors if you do that. But if there is a weight loss protocol that allows you to lose mostly fat mass, maintain lean mass, stabilize your resting metabolic rate so you don't get into the problem of, of trouble with maintenance. And you know if that is your weight loss protocol or your weight loss um, results, I guess you could say, would you see that differently than the literature we have out there now regarding weight loss? Oh, I think so, because, you know, one of the things we uh, point out in the uh, article is that uh, when we have this weight centric approach where weight loss to the general population is viewed as something that is desirable, something that is necessary uh, for our health, um, then you then you basically open this up to basically anything goes if weight loss is the is the goal. So there are studies that have been published. We actually cite some in the paper that show that um, individuals who are on the heavy side, you know, the overweight or uh, obese by the body mass index, index criteria, they are far more likely to engage in unhealthy dietary practices. So I'm talking about extreme weight loss, starvation, very low calorie diets, uh, laxatives, um, over-the-counter diet pills and so forth. And so these individuals are most at risk. And so this is another reason for questioning the whole issue of is a fat person who is unhealthy or dies of a heart attack, is that due to the body fat or is it due to the behaviors? And one of those behaviors might be just weight cycling. There is a large body of evidence. We cited a couple meta-analyses in our uh, article that basically showed that weight cycling, this repetitive, repetitive dieting and weight loss, weight gain, weight loss, weight gain, uh, increases mortality risk by about as much as just being fat itself in terms of just a mere association. Now, these are uh, um, observational studies, so it doesn't prove cause and effect, but it should, certainly should suggest to some people that, hey, this weight cycling, it never seems to be <laughs> good. Uh, it might be benign, but lots of times it might be bad. So out of three opportunities, we never have any good come of it might be benign, but lots of times it turns out uh, to be bad for individuals. So I don't think that's a good scenario. So if you can come up with a way to have an individual have a program that would selectively not reduce any fat-free mass, but just reduce fat and keep it off, that would be golden. But those kinds of programs just are, are so extremely rare and have not been documented in the literature. So it's really hard to have individuals lose nothing but fat it has happened with exercise programs, but it's very rare unless individuals, um, uh, even exercise associated with weight loss rarely prevents the loss of some lean tissue. So therein lies the problem. But definitely, and we point this out, that uh, lean t the body composition, lean tissue to fat mass ratio might be important. As a matter of fact, there was a paper published last year that showed that um, fitness in terms of VO2 max, usually it's expressed relative to body weight. 
And so in a lot of these fitness studies that we cited in our paper, uh, fitness was defined as VO2 max, either in mils per kg per minute. So that's oxygen uptake relative right. to your body weight. Well, a study was published just last year that showed that a better predictor of mortality risk is your VO2 max relative to your fat-free mass, which is basically giving you an idea of the quality of your fat-free mass. And so I think this is very important. And I think this is something in moving forward we, sh we should be concerned about. In other words, it's not just the composition, how much fat you have, how much lean tissue you have, how much muscle you have. It's the quality of that tissue that's important. And someone can have a lot of fat-free mass. They, they may not be healthy unless that fat-free mass is of mm. high quality. In other words, fit of uh, 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 muscle. Because muscle uh, is an important tissue, an extremely important tissue. Best example of that, and this will bring in the, uh, the comment you made about uh, lifting weights to add you know, muscle mass. Uh, and one of the benefits of resistance training. Uh, we've got a, a diabetes problem in our country and, well, worldwide as well. So we have a, a diabetes problem. Well, most of the problems associated with diabetes, the underlying cause is insulin resistance. And that is largely a matter of skeletal muscle. So when you take in carbohydrates, you mentioned, you know, a while back, um, a few moments ago, people who may, may be taken, you mentioned Gatorade, basically all carb, pasta, all carb, people who consume a lot of these foods, if they are insulin resistant, they're going to have problems. And so insulin resistance is a huge issue. Most of the carbohydrate we consume, that carbohydrate is basically processed in tissues that store carbohydrate like muscle and liver. And muscle is the most important. It is the major site of glucose disposal when we consume anything with uh, carbohydrate in it. So having a lot of muscle that is very fit and healthy, like you might have in an active re resistance exerciser, yeah. that's a good thing. And so, yes, I'm all for that. But I think just taking a body composition analysis and looking at how much fat-free mass you have versus how much fat mass is, again, missing the point because the body composition isn't nearly as important as knowing the quality of that tissue and not just the quality of the muscle, but the quality of the fat as well. And that, that, that's interesting. I hadn't heard it presented quite like that before, that, that having a lot of fat-free mass by itself isn't necessarily the goal, but it's the function of that tissue. Because it's almost like an assumption that any fat-free mass functions well. But then again, it has to do with no, your metabolic that, parameters. That is, it has to do with your insulin yeah, resistance right. and your glucose utilization. Yeah. And yeah, so that, that does come right. back and sort of bring it full circle. That's not, no, the body, that's... That's the one thing that I have against just body composition alone. To me, it suffers from the same limitations as just BMI or yeah. weight alone. It doesn't tell you about the quality of that tissue. So you can have two individuals, and one might just have a lot of lean tissue, fat-free mass. You know, it, it could be a lot of muscle mass. But if that muscle mass is not active, if it's not regularly active, it's not necessarily going to be healthy. So... Um, yeah, I think you need to know more about the behaviors of an individual, not just the body composition. Yeah. And when I mentioned, I also mentioned something about the quality of fat tissue. And someone might think, quality of fat tissue, it's got to be all bad, right? Well, not necessarily. And this is another reason for us focusing on fitness. There's um, a, a great amount of literature now, substantial amount of literature, mostly on animals, for obvious reasons, I'll tell you in a second, that show that Exercise basically can make your fat tissue that you have healthier and fitter, even if you don't lose it. So the classic studies were done. Uh, the first I was aware of was some researchers at Harvard did this. And they got uh, rats or mice, actually, trained them on a treadmill. So these mice got fit. They were like aerobic exercises, treadmill trained, very fit mice. And they had their litter mates basically same strain of mice that were sedentary and glucose intolerant. So they had elevated sugar, elevated insulin, and so forth. And they took the trained mice, operated on them, and surgically removed some adipose tissue from the trained mice and surgically implanted it into the sedentary, unhealthy mice. 
the unhealthy mice got better. Their glucose intolerance, uh, to- glucose tolerance improved to the point where it was like normal. They had not exercised. They just had the benefit of getting some fit adipose tissue from the trained animals and basically had it implanted in them. So this just suggests that there are things that happen in an individual when they exercise train that not only affects their heart, lungs, muscles, it also affects their fat. So you can actually have a person who exercises regularly that has a lot of adipose tissue on them, but that fat might be a lot fitter than the fat on a sedentary person. Yeah. And I say fitter because it's just metabolically healthier. It's more insulin sensitive. It will secrete chemicals that basically have positive effects on our glucose metabolism. And we're not all going to run out and get fat biopsies. So I guess the only way to really measure that is your systemic no. insulin sensitivity, your glucose, your, your insulin yep. response, yeah. your triglycerides, your these ACL. Are, that's, yeah. These are laboratory studies just to, again, show in an animal model that exercise has some effects on tissues other than uh, just the muscle and, and the heart. So, I mean, I think that's fascinating. And if it affects skeletal muscle and heart, and also adipose tissue, what other tissues can it affect? Well, we know that uh, exercise is a good way to reduce liver fat. So obviously it must have an effect on the liver as well. And so, uh, you know, this is our, you know, the case we try to make for exercise. Well, I, I, that's such a great explanation and, and brings up so many different ways to see exercise, weight loss, health, nutrition. But I think it does sort of all tie it into there's a healthy version of all this and then unhealthy versions of all this. And we need to sort of reframe the discussion around the healthy versions. And what does that healthy version mean? Well, it mostly means metabolic health, how you're processing glucose, how your insulin is working and your insulin sensitivity. You can use measurements like triglycerides and HDL and inflammatory markers. And you can use measurements like uh, cardiorespiratory fitness and physical activity. But sometimes focusing on the outcomes aren't the best way to motivate people necessarily to do it. Instead, focusing on the activities themselves um, seems to be a big part of your message, which which I think does sort of wrap it up nicely. But So I, I leave you with that as, as my conclusion and want to see what, what how you would conclude this to kind of wrap up this discussion. And then, of course, let us know what's what's coming down the pike in your future and what we can expect to hear uh, more from you. Yeah, no, you, you summed it up well. Um, you know, we're trying to convey this message that exercise is medicine and exercise should be viewed as an intrinsically valuable behavior no matter what else happens no matter if you know the numbers on the scale don't change it is valuable so even if it doesn't reduce risk markers and someone doesn't want to you know start medication uh, you're still going to be better off because the individuals who exercise it seems to have systemic effects that produce a overall better cardiometabolic health profile, even if individuals don't change each and ever each and every one of their biomarkers. So we just think it needs to be pitched in such a way that it is a, a behavior that should be you know engaged in regularly, and not necessarily for weight loss. You know the fundamental you know goal of the paper was to treat, try to treat exercise, physical activity, fitness. Um, These are primary outcomes. You know, these are endpoints that are ends in themselves. They're not a means to an end. Exercise should not be viewed as just a means to an end, like weight loss, but basically an end in its own right. And it doesn't have to be the kind of exercise that people conjure up images of, like working in a gym, running on a treadmill or a stationary bike or lifting weights. You can get in activity that is outside, enjoyable sports and so forth that count as well. And it can be done on the weekend uh, and doesn't have to be done every day. A great study published a couple of years ago looking at what they called the weekend warrior. People who did all their activity, if they met the physical activity guidelines but did it all on the weekend, they were just as well off as people who spread it out every day of the week. So. Another good message that it doesn't have to be like a, a daily. It doesn't have to be something you think, well, every day I've got to do this. Um, you can take some time off. You know, it doesn't have to be every day. So, uh, you know, those, those are the, you know, the messages we'd like to get across, that exercise is good. And, and where can people um, find you to, to hear more about what you have to say and learn more about your research and, and what's coming in the future? 
Oh, uh, they can just get a hold of me um, uh, off the website at uh, Arizona State University. So if they just Googled my name, Glenn Gazer, Arizona State University, it'll pop right up and uh, my email address is there. So if someone wanted to email me and follow up from this uh, uh, podcast here, I'd be happy to reply to them. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today on the Diet Doctor podcast.